John Le Carré, uh, certainly the most famous author of spy novels in the past 40-50 years, said at the end of the Cold War that uh, the players might have changed, but the game went on. And the game here is the grand game between the grand powers of the world. And indeed, we are now seeing a new episode of this grand game. And the protagonists, the players this time are the United States and China. Primarily at least. Others might be on the scene, the European Union, Russia, India, and perhaps others but very much the US and China. And the grand game these days is a struggle. For a number of years, people in international relations, in global strategy, have been debating, is it a competition? Is it a confrontation? And it can be all of that, but I think at this stage, it is a struggle a strategic struggle it has transcended being a mere competition or a mere confrontation it is a struggle and perhaps one of the most important dynamics that will affect that struggle is the choice that america will undertake of whether or not to really oppose the rise of china as a global superpower, as a challenger, effectively, to the United States. And many people would say that's a given. Of course, the US will oppose the rise of China. But I think it is not a foregone conclusion. Because right now, in 2021, 2022, 2023, there are two schools of thought in the US. There's one school of thought that says, of course, the US will have to defend its moment of being the sole superpower. The moment that started with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1990-1991. A moment that is now slightly over 30 years. And in this view, the US has no choice but to confront China, to stop at least to slow down its rise to become a challenger to the US as a superpower. On the other side, however, there is a view that says, not necessarily. In that view, people think that the reasons, the interests that are there for the US in Northeastern Asia, the region around China, are not compelling enough for the US to undertake this dramatically important strategic confrontation with China. In this view, whether defense of Japan, whether preventing China from taking over Taiwan, whether stopping China from extending its influence in the South China Sea or the East China Sea these factors are not of immense strategic importance to the United States to merit the resources, the effort, the energy, the time, the concentration that 
are needed for a strategic confrontation such as the one that is there to stop or to slow down the rise of China. Especially in this view that the US has incredibly serious, some would say difficult, economic and social challenges within, at home. And also especially that the US for now over 20 years has been embroiled in wars in Afghanistan, in Al-Iraq, that under any circumstances did not yield very good results despite the immense resources that were given to these confrontations, to these wars. And therefore, again, it is not a foregone conclusion that the US will exert effort and energy and engage in this strategic struggle with China. Indeed, right now, to go into that struggle is the much more dominant view within the White House, within the most important state institutions within the United States, at the major influential think tanks in mainstream media, yet it is not certain that this will be the choice of the US. Why? Because in addition to all of these factors I mentioned, the idea of the US engaging in the world and with the world has always been debatable in the past 200-250 years of American history. There has always been, in that very long period, another notion of the US retreating from the world, being isolated by choice, by choice, isolating itself from the world. And the choice of isolation, to a very large extent, was actually a natural choice for the United States. For this is a society of immigrants. And the very early immigrants in the United States in the late 1600s and early 1700s very much left the old world, left Europe, primarily escaping either persecution or escaping societies that they deemed as sinful. Remember, most of these groups were Puritanicals, were people who had very strict, purified, exalted or exalting views of the divine, of human society, and therefore they wanted to create a very ideal or idealized society. That's why the idea of the city on a hill, the idea of America, the new, at the time, nascent society in the U.S. as a pure society that would become a symbol of human perfection, of ascension to divinity. That's why that America in their imagination was perceived to be not just a choice of God on earth, but not also not just a, a blessed society, but indeed some sort of an ideal society that the rest of the world would look up to, would want to emulate. The second reason that strengthened the idea of isolation in the early stages of American history was that the continent that those immigrants found 
proved to be immensely rich. And therefore, many of these communities of immigrants did not want others to come quickly and to share in the wealth that they found there. And in addition to that, also remember that the old world, Europe, that these immigrants had left was in the late 17th and throughout the 18th century very much, and of course the early 19th century during the Napoleonic Wars, very much a land of wars and struggles and blood. So there wasn't really much that the newly created communities of those immigrants would look back to Europe with nostalgia for. Very much they wanted to leave the old world behind. There wasn't much that they would be saying, oh, we've missed all of that. Not really. And in addition to all of that, these communities that had settled in the eastern part of the United States found that the rest of the continent, the rest of the US, was also immensely rich. And therefore there was the beginning of the march of the early Americans westwards. Initially for, for gold that was rumored to be there in California, but the idea in general was to conquer the continent to take hold of the entirety of Northern America. And again, all of that meant that the efforts, the concentration, the resources of those immigrants needed to be focused upon these reasons in America rather than to be engaged or engaging with the old world Europe that they had left. And some would say, of course, in addition to all of that, there was this struggle with many different Native American communities in the move of those immigrants westwards to conquer the entirety of the continent. And then, in the second half of the 19th century, there was the American Civil War, which of course focused attention, resources, and what have you, internally within the U.S. So we have at least 150 years of American history in which there were compelling reasons why the U.S. wanted to be inward looking, not really bothered with the rest of the world and not really wanting to engage with the rest of the world, especially with Europe. But starting the late 19th century, the scene changed. There were new reasons that led the United States to start to think about interacting with the outside world. And the first factor was money, trading. Many American communities started to make immense amounts of money from the richness that was there in the US. And money wanted to be deployed. And part of that deployment meant to go outside the US for trading. That's why some of the initial forays of America outside the US went to Asia. Initially actually to places such as the Philippines and Japan 
in the mid-19th century, it was an American fleet that forced Japan to open up to the world after itself being isolated and closed off to the entire world for at least two, three hundred years. That itself is a very interesting story of how the US forced Japan to open up in the mid-19th century. But the point I'm trying to say here is that trading, the search for money, for wealth, was the primary reason that led the US to get out of its own borders. That also led the US to expand southwards to Mexico and later to Latin America, open new markets, secure resources for the agricultural and industrial efforts that at the time the late 19th century were taking place in the US, especially after the end of the American Civil War. At that time, a very interesting concept appeared in the US, the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine, named after an American president, President Monroe, established that the US can very much go outside America, the American continent, to pursue resources, open markets, but no European power, certainly no Asian power, can come to the Americas, North America or South America, seeking to build any influence there. That meant that the US gave itself the right to expand elsewhere in the world, but it prohibited others, mainly European powers, from coming to not only North America, but also South America. That was certainly one of the early signs of America establishing itself as a global power that has its own sphere of influence that nobody can challenge. At that time, we are talking now the very late 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, something interesting started to happen, two things in particular. One, there was the emergence of a very important thinker in the US who later became a president, and that is Theodore Roosevelt or Teddy Roosevelt, arguably the most important thinker on American national security at that time. Theodore Roosevelt was very much a, a, a true strategic thinker, but also very much a very assertive man. And I would argue he was the man who gave birth to the idea of America as a superpower, a global power. He was also one of the most important architects of the American Navy. And of course, America being a continent with the Atlantic separating it from Europe, with the Pacific separating it from Asia, it needed a very powerful navy to be able to secure the trading routes that took it, took America to the rest of the world, and that would protect its shores, and that would force other countries to open up, such as with Japan. The thinking of Theodore Roosevelt was so powerful, so influential, that it was one of the reasons that the US started to toy with the idea of ditching its isolationism and opening up to the idea of engaging with the world, going out to the world. 
A second factor was the First World War. The First World War from 1914 to 1918 was immensely devastating in Europe. Immensely devastating. The cost in lives and treasure in Europe was unprecedented, was, was dramatic. Tens of thousands of people died. Empires, the Habsburgs, the Ottomans and others collapsed. Countries were divided. And Europe emerged out of this war so weakened. And of course, it was also the birth of fascism in different parts of Europe, such as in Italy and after that in Germany. But the point here was that the old empires, Britain and France, very much emerged victorious, yes, but weakened. And that opened a strategic opportunity, a window for the US, not just to get out to the world, but for its richness to start to, to shine over the old world. It was that time that not just American industry, but American wealth, the very rich families of the East Coast of the US, of Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, that started to appear in London, in Paris, in Rome, in Vienna, and started to buy old palaces and, and buy glorious assets and showcase the power of American wealth at the time. Another very interesting factor that also weakened isolationism in the US and gave rise to the idea of an American expansion in the world was that American openness to the world going out to the world was not challenged primarily by the most important superpower of the time which was Britain. Britain interestingly came to a conclusion in the late 19th century that it will not challenge the rise of the US. Of course, Britain was the old colonial power that used to occupy the US. And the American War of Independence to create the United States was against Britain. And yet, about a century and a half after that, or almost two centuries after that, Britain realized the Admiralty particularly, effectively the, the Ministry of Defense, if you'd like, of Britain, the Navy, in Britain realized that it cannot challenge the rise of the US as a global superpower. And that's why at the time, Britain took the decision that it will accommodate the rise of the United States. This was one of the very rare moments in global history, the entire human history, that a superpower effectively accommodates the rise of another superpower. Some might say, here we have elements such as sharing the English language, the many connections, including familial connections between families in Britain and families in the US. All of that factored in the decision of Britain not to challenge the US, not to go to war with the US and to allow, to accommodate the rise of the US as a superpower. All of that might very well be true. And it is a very interesting story. But the fact of the matter is, the rise of the US as a superpower in the late 19th century, early 20th century, was not challenged. And yet, despite all of these factors, the US, after the First World War, 
did not really go out and start to spread its influence. Some of its companies started to enter new markets. Certainly some of its wealthiest families at the time started to buy different assets in Europe. But the US as a country did not really go out in the world and establish itself as a superpower. On the contrary, many would say, and I would argue, that the US chose to go back within its own borders to a very large extent after the First World War. Yet, it was the Second World War that sealed the case for expansion, that ended isolationism in the US. Because, one, America was attacked in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese Air Force attacked one of the most important maritime bases of the US, and the attack was on American land. So that was a provocation that the US could not ignore. Some would say, rightly, I would say that Japan felt that its expansion in Asia was being challenged by the US and therefore that's why Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. That's debatable, but at least it is a historical view. Irrespective of the matter, the US was attacked by Japan in Pearl Harbor and therefore the US effectively had to enter the war. But the most important reason, I think, is that the American president at the time, Franklin Roosevelt, another Roosevelt, actually a cousin of Teddy Roosevelt I mentioned earlier, Franklin Roosevelt had a view that the US is indeed a global superpower, that the US must confront fascism in Europe, so basically Nazi Germany, and defeat it and must stand with Britain primarily in stemming the spread of fascism in Europe in securing the victory of the West as seen at that time as Britain, to some extent France and certainly the US against fascism in Europe. And of course also with the Soviet Union at the time, though it was a very awkward alliance. But the point here is that it was the thinking of another Roosevelt, this time Franklin Roosevelt, about the role of America in the world and its rightful place as the superpower. That led America to enter the Second World War on two fronts, in Asia and in Europe. And of course, the US emerged victorious in this war. Importantly, the US emerged rich out of this war because Britain emerged victorious, but it was by far, by far poorer than it was before the war. France was effectively occupied by the Nazi, and the rest of Europe was very much devastated. Asia was very poor at the time. It was only America that really had the immense wealth, its immense wealth intact. Soviet Union was, of course, victorious, but arguably it had bore the, the heaviest burden of the war. Tens of millions of, of Russians and Soviets were killed and the economy was very much devastated. Only the US emerged from the Second World War, both victorious and rich. And many would say that, yes, throughout the post-Second World War years and the Cold War, 
there were two superpowers, the US and the Soviet Union, but the level, the differential in wealth between both of them was major. The US was much, much richer than the Soviet Union, and therefore it was the primary superpower. All of that ended the idea of America being isolated from the world, America choosing to remain within its own borders until the end of the Cold War, 1990, 1991, when America became the sole superpower. Now, 30 years plus after that moment, there is a challenger on the scene, a very important challenger, China. And again, we are back to the first question. Will America choose to confront China? to enter into this strategic struggle with China, or will it decide that its interests in the neighborhood of China are not compelling enough for it to exert immense effort and blood? Now, 30 years after the end of the Cold War with America, this superpower, there is now the question that America must face of whether or not to choose to confront China, whether or not to exert effort and immense resources to stop at least to slow down the rise of China, or will it decide that the interests of America in the Chinese neighborhood are not compelling enough and therefore do not merit this strategic confrontation? As I said at the very beginning, right now, 2023, in the most important centers of decision-making in the U.S., the idea is to confront. And throughout history, most, most cases, the empires, the superpowers, always wanted to stop others from challenging them. Yet, it is not a foregone conclusion, especially given the immense economic and social challenges within the United States. That's why the choice of the U.S. now and in the coming few years of whether or not to stand up to the Chinese challenge and how is arguably the most important strategic decision that the U.S. will undertake.